Hello and welcome to The Long View, a podcast that takes a closer look at the games people play. The Long View is a proud member of the Dice Tower Network. Go to Dicetower.com to find just tons of podcasts and gaming content for you um, that will match any kind of board gaming interest, whether it's party games with the Party Game Cast, whether it's uh, war games, whether it is the latest, greatest Euro, you'll find something at the Dice Tower for you, along with a host of great video reviews and commentary. The Long View is also generously sponsored by GameSurplus.com. GameSurplus.com is your first and best choice if you're looking to purchase games online, and that's because Thor's customer service is second to none. Uh, He'll go out of his way to find a game if you're trying to locate one for you, and if you send him a request, he'll be sure to try and track it down and give you a friendly little email as soon as he's found the game you're looking for. So if you're looking for truly exceptional customer service, a great selection, and great prices, go to gamesurplus.com. Also want to give a special shout out to uh, people living in the northeastern region of Pennsylvania and northern New Jersey for the Gamer's Edge. The Gamer's Edge is a brand new game store that has opened in the Stroudsburg, Pennsylvania area, and they are growing their board game collection by leaps and bounds. They are well on their way to over 500 titles in store for you to peruse, try out, and buy. So I encourage everyone to go to Gamer's Edge. They also have a full selection of comic books, Magic the Gathering cards, and more. So, Gamer's Edge in Stroudsburg, a great place to go if you're in northeastern Pennsylvania. My name is Jeff Gamble. I am the host here of The Long View, and today I'm very proud to be joined once again by Martin Griffiths, all the way over from uh, the UK, and Martin and I are going to be talking today about a great little card game, a game that has won the Spiel des Jahres this year, and that game is Hanabi. So first of all, Martin, I want to say hello, and thanks for joining me again today. Hey, Jeff. It's great to be back again. Well, thanks. It's always a pleasure, and uh, I'm glad we had the chance to do this quick recording here, because uh, here in Pennsylvania on, um, what is this, like January the 3rd, we had a rather large snowstorm, and uh, that kind of closed schools down for today, so uh, that allowed me to be able to sync up with UK time with Martin and uh, get this done real quick. So thank you very much for uh, being uh, flexible and willing to join me today, and I look forward to talking to you. Great. Looking forward to it. So, Martin, we're going to do a couple of things today, and one of the things is going to be new. Um, What we're going to be working on is we're going to be talking, of course, about Hanabi, but we're also going to be taking a look at the year 1995 in board games, which is really a very interesting year because of a few really big titles, and we'll get to that little juicy bit a bit later. And then we're going to end the show with a new segment. I think what I'm going to try to do um, is do a quick kind of a board game review at the end of each show. 
show. Um, some people would like to hear some quick reviews. I've done some segments before called Quick Looks and posted them individually. But I think what I'm going to do now is I'm going to actually put Quick Look reviews at the, ta- at the tail end, uh, as it were, of the episode. So those who are looking for uh, a review of a newer board game can continue to listen. And those who perhaps are getting that uh, need met from other great podcasts and videos out there uh, can simply uh, uh, disregard that if that's not to your liking. So we're going to give that a try here in the new year. So Martin, you get to be my guinea pig as we're going to do a quick review of Palaces of Carrera. You game for that? Sounds good to me. All right, fantastic. Take a step back in time and join us as we look at a year in board gaming here on The Long View. Martin, uh, as I told you, our year in board games this year is 1995. And if you do a quick search on Board Game Geek, the first game that pops up is The Settlers of Catan. Um, I don't know that there's a whole lot that I can say or that, that I can think of that hasn't already been said about this game. It's a landmark game. It's a game that sort of started the invasion of German-style board games in the United States. Um, You know, from everything that I've read, it was really kind of the first of these kind of Euro-style games to make a huge splash here in the States and continues to sell well and continues to bring new people into the hobby. So while the game is rather old uh, by board gaming standards, it really actually continues to be very influential today here in the States where the board gaming sort of uh, traditions have always been sort of relegated to Scrabble and Monopoly and Sorry and sort of those traditional uh, American sort of board games before we were introduced to all of these uh, new and different games. Um, so uh, what can you tell me? Uh, have you had any experience playing Settlers of Catan or any memories of it? Or was there a similar impact in the UK when this game was released or no? Well, um, I can't tell you about the impact in, in the UK when it was released, I don't think, because that, um, that was long before I discovered the hobby for myself. But it certainly was uh, one of the, the first games I discovered when I was getting into the hobby right after Carcassonne, which was, which was my first introduction. I, I did some, started looking around and heard about this game. Settlers of Catan seemed to be a lot of talk about it, seemed to be pretty popular. So that was the, that was the next game I tried. Some friends had just uh, picked up a copy and... And I, I was really, I think this was the first game I, I liked. I really liked Carcassonne a lot, but I think Settlers of Catan just blew me away. I thought, wow, this design is so clever and it does all these things that the games I've been used to playing don't do. And, and it's so smart and such. So, so everything just fits together so nicely. It just seemed such a great design. And I know it's pretty fashionable uh, from today's gamers on on board game geek to, to bash settlers and say you know it's been <laughs> it's been superseded and yeah well it was okay for its time and all this kind of thing I think it still really holds up I think it's a it, it's a genius piece of game design yeah I would have to agree with you uh, you know I know that it is certainly fashionable to say that settlers is passe and it isn't my favorite game by far I mean I I, I will freely admit that sure but I, I think um, as a design. It really is sort of a hallmark game because, as you said, it is it introduced some things that were very new, at least to me. I don't know about other earlier Euro game designs, but it introduced modular boards, 
which really just increased replayability. Uh, it introduced uh, for me uh, a lot of the negotiation that I hadn't seen in a game, uh, trading and negotiation that I hadn't seen in a game since uh, Civilization and Advanced Civilization. Um, the very simple route building, network building, uh, and area sort of, uh, it's not really area enclosure, but like where you cut off your opponents by right. how you build on the board. So it had you know spatial elements to it. It had trading. It had uh, that variable board, uh, variable board setup. It had a resource collection. And you know everyone is kind of trying to jockey for the regions that are going to be the best producers based solely on the normal probability of die rolls, which I really right. thought was really interesting. Um, I found that the dice personally interfered with my enjoyment of the game uh, in that I don't know how many times I played where I would have regions that should have produced quite a bit, regions maybe in the sixes or eights or something, and they just never seemed to roll no matter what happened. And I never had any cards, and I had stuff that nobody wanted. And, you know, yes, you can trade with the bank, but it's usually at a pretty brutal kind of an exchange rate. I think it's, what, four to one or something? or uh, right. it's It's pretty bad. And so for me... The game kind of bogged down uh, because of the die rolls. That was the one part that I didn't like. But there's no denying how interesting the game was from a design standpoint and how influential it was. So uh, while I agree that it doesn't get a lot of love nowadays, I think it's something that deserves a lot of respect. Yeah, definitely. And I kind of feel the same. It's not, you know, it's not something I'm wanting to play all the time now, but but I still respect it a huge amount. And actually, though you say it has all these kind of new things and and that's really cool. I think one of the other things that's really great about it as a design is that for people who haven't played any of our games before, it actually contains a lot of things familiar to them from the games they will have played. And and in a way I kind of think of it as Monopoly remixed, you know. It has um two dice that you throw at the start of your turn you do what you you do what the dice say uh you have kind of chance cards with the um whatever they're called i can't remember what they're called um you have um you have trading you have building up sets you have you're placing little houses on the board so that you can collect more stuff right. um you have the robber which is your kind of you know like uh, almost like the jail in monopoly and and yeah so i i just think it's really neat yeah, that's very interesting. There are a lot of sort of elements that would be familiar to people who haven't played that style of game before, and I hadn't really thought of that. So thanks for sharing that. That's a that's an interesting perspective, and probably one of the reasons why it's such a great gateway game. You know, I think a lot of people point to it because it has a relatively simple rule set, um, but I think in addition, it has to do with what you just talked about, which is that there are elements, there are things that are going to be um, familiar to people who maybe hadn't played that style of game before. So that I think that's spot on. So thanks for sharing that because it, it really does go to explain why uh, people like my uh, brother-in-law and, and sister-in-law and people who are not what I would call gamers, that was one of the first games that they kind of went to. And they played it, Martin, for like a year. Like that was yeah. what they did. Like every week they got together and they played Settlers and that's what yeah. they really enjoyed. Yeah, yeah. Um, another game uh, that appears on this list that I think is also equally influential would have to be the uh, 1995 release of the game El Grande. Um, this is a game that actually is still in my collection for a lot of reasons that I could get into. And 
Actually, I don't want to say too much about it simply because I've got a, a, a an episode in the works for El Grande because I think it's a game that I would like to try and talk about a little bit more. So rather than me kind of waxing on about it and uh, uh, going on, um, what's been your experience, if any, with El Grande and what are your impressions of it? Um, El Grande was another one I guess I picked up fairly early on when I was kind of digging back into the BGG rankings and thinking, you know, what are, what are all these games and uh, which ones do I want to try? And I, I, I got a copy of El Grande, played it, I guess, quite a few times, maybe 10, 10 plus, um, enjoyed it, but kind of never really loved it. I didn't love it as much as some of the other games I discovered around that kind of time and, and ended up um, trading it away and i don't know i mean i again it's it, it's a good design i think and it, and it and it kind of the forefather of all those many many uh area majority games that that we see now but something about it just didn't ever quite click for me and um i don't know i mean i i feel it is a pretty chaotic game it's with um the order of things you know you can go a long time between you having your two actions so much can change on the board and i don't know i just i just never quite loved it and also some of the 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 way the cards work at like the i think it's the veto card in particular i was Mm -hmm. never never quite sure exactly how that was supposed to work and that always (laughs) kind of bugged me as well yeah the cards are are a very interesting part of that game and that seems to be the point at which opinions diverge about el grande um, you know, there are some people who uh, like the way the cards are used. Uh, and of course, you have two sets of cards. You have your bidding cards, uh, where you bid for your position in turn order so that you can be the first to claim the sort of action cards that are laid out in an array. And so you have this kind of double layer here where you have your cards that you're bidding. And, you know, once you've used them, for the most part, I mean, they're gone. Um, So you really have to kind of think strategically about when you want to make your push. When are you going to throw that big card that's going to guarantee you going first? And then you have this sort of randomness, although they are kind of arranged uh, in a certain order. I think it's like decks one, two, three, and four, if if my memory's not failing me. Um, And so, you know, as you flip up the cards, you're going to get this distribution that is somewhat consistent, but there's a lot of variation ability there and that's where i see some people start to lose their interest in the game they feel it can be either too chaotic or too punishing um i find the game the the word that i use kind of to describe it is very dynamic and it's very dynamic especially given its age or maybe because of its age there's a lot of people who have been talking recently about how you know this sort of less is more idea and fewer rules fewer mechanisms fewer things going on in the game and el grande as you said is at heart nothing more than an area majority game so there's kind of a simplicity to that um but trying to manipulate the cards and and manipulate the regions and of course then you have that castillo which is kind of hidden unless you're uh, with people who can really keep track of all the cubes that have been chucked in there. Uh, I just find it to be a very dynamic game. you got the mobile scoreboards that move around. Very interesting. So I you know, can understand what you're saying about how you just kind of decided it wasn't for you. Um, I, I agree with you, though. It's certainly a design that I respect quite a lot. And it does seem to be sort of the the progenitor, that sort of grandfather of these area majority games. So uh, just as a little brief aside, so El Grande didn't do it for you. What, if any, area majority game do you kind of feel 
does it for you? Like it, you know, which, which one does? Uh, I actually like a bunch of them. I'm trying to think of, um, I mean, there's some really interesting ones that kind of twist the area majority idea a bit. Um, King of Siam is one that I, I really enjoy. That's a, that's a real, um, real weird brain burning little game. Um, Tammany Hall is another one I really mm-hmm. like that, um, that I think harks back to, to El Grande in some ways. But, um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I definitely like the me- the mechanism in general and, you know, I, I, I don't, I, I do quite like El Grande. You know, I like it as a design. I'd happily play it again. I, I like that it's, it's as you say, a kind of fairly simple and highly interactive Euro, and that's kind of uh, that's the kind of game I go for. So it was just, you know, it just wasn't quite doing right. it for me, but it's still it's still a great game, I think. Yeah, I was really kind of curious to see what you're going to say there because I've talked with a lot of people who indicate King of Siam as sort of a new area majority game that they really like. And it's usually because there's more player control and a little less luck. But then you have people who also talk about Tammany Hall, which can be quite chaotic, quite in your face, not particularly balanced. I mean, the players kind of have to balance that game themselves uh, or someone may run away with it. And so it was kind of it it was interesting that you kind of went to both sort of ends there in your answer. And I think that might be because a lot of, uh, you know, those lines from um, El Grande kind of go out in many different directions. I think it, it has influenced a lot of designs, and that's why I think it's one of those that is a really important game. Well, thanks for sharing your thoughts uh, about El Grande with me, and it's a game that really does fascinate me, and I'm hoping I can uh, get that episode done relatively soon. Uh, next on our list, Martin, we have Warhammer Quest from 1995. Now, I have not played any of those games, but I know that the Warhammer sort of series, Warhammer Quest, I think, was supposed to be a little bit more of a friendly, kind of a family-friendly, not so rules-intensive as the full-blown Warhammer. Have you had any experience with uh, these games at all? I have not, Jeff. I, I think this probably is one that falls foul of my no orcs rule. <laughs> I didn't know there was such a thing. You have a <laughs> no orcs rule. Okay. All right. Uh, I've never heard of such a thing, but that's great. Yes, I would imagine that Warhammer Quest would have to probably involve orcs or elves or some kind of uh, some such thing. So uh, I can see why that would not uh, go well for you. <laughs> All right, um, moving along there, because I haven't had any experience with it either. I was kind of hoping you did, but that's okay. We're going to go to Pitch Car, which was also brought out in 1995 and is one of those uh, early kind of dexterity games. I mean, of course, there's always been, you know, shuffleboard, tabletop shuffleboard, crokinole or crokinole. I think it's crokinole. All of those great little dexterity games. I don't know when Elk Fest came out, which is hilarious because it's not an elk, it's a moose. Um, All of these kind of great things. But Pitch Car really was this whole system and it really was quite popular when it came out and it's still popular. Uh, This is a game that I had the chance to play once and uh, I had a lot of fun building the track. Uh, The sort of MDF that that stuff is made out of weighs like a metric ton. I don't know what they made it out of, whether it was like pieces of Neutron Star or (laughs) what it was. But I got to tell you, you know, I took out this box and it's like sagging. It's like going to implode under its own weight or something uh, and and turn into a singularity. Um, There's uh, more astronomical references about a game than anyone has ever made. So there we go. Um, But, you know, I had a great time setting up the board. And I think the reason they went with 
that material was, it doesn't seem to warp. It seems to lay perfectly flat. And it seems to be machined so well that you don't get those kind of little hiccups that you sometimes get with modern flicking games that are cardboard-based, where the seams don't line up perfectly and things will sometimes get blocked or whatnot. Uh, I'm thinking of games like Ascending Empires and, and you know games like that that have had that problem. And so you have this beautiful, smooth surface. You set up your track, and you just go. And the rules are really simple. You're just flicking your disc around and trying to be the first one to win and uh, cross the finish line and not flick your, your disc off the track. And I, I had a lot of fun with it. Did you ever play it before, or is that one that missed you? <laughs> no, I really like Pitch Car. I, I've played it quite a few times and um, and actually have happy memories of it because it's uh, – we have our um, twice a year. The uh, London on board gamers have this big weekend uh, getaway at a hotel on the on the coast of England, and uh, often there's a couple of different tournaments running at, at, at this event. And a couple of years ago, one of them was a was a pitch car tournament, which turned into an epic, where the um, the guy who was running the tournament had designed all these different circuits he wanted to use and you had to compete in three races and there were like qualifying laps and i mean it just it just kind of took over a whole day and actually the final ended up being the next morning because it it was just you know we weren't going to get it all done and at, part, at times i was thinking why why am i still uh, why am i still playing this when i you know there's all these other games i want to be playing but it, it just kind of turned into this whole group experience it was really good fun and and in the end we came back the next morning for the final and and i won the race and uh, and became the uh, london on board pitch car champion so yeah oh, I, have, I have happy memories of the game that's great that's great and uh you know it, it's it's interesting to hear you talk about it because what kept coming through as you were talking was the fact that it's just fun you know you yeah. you talked about this idea of you know there are other games that you wanted to play and why am i still doing this and uh, i think scott nicholson who I, I was able to spend a little bit of time talking with at bgg con would agree that you know it's the fun you know it's it's the fun in the game and also the the social experience you know uh, hanging out with that many people and participating in an event you know an actual experience with that many people uh, just sort of elevates it into something completely different uh, which is not to say that you can't have a great experience playing you know any game with uh, a smaller group of people but there is something special about those sort of convention memories where you just have these over-the-top kind of experiences and with you getting to be crown champion I mean that's got to be pretty awesome uh, that there must have been quite a lot of people there yes yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess we started we started off probably with about thirty people entered with a tournament, something like that. Nice, nice. All right. Well, you know, it's one that I I really like. The only reason I have not added it to my collection, quite frankly, is I don't really have the space for it. Yeah. I, I don't really have a table that's big enough, and my house is rather small. I don't even really think I have the floor space that would be necessary to really lay out a nice track. So, you know, it's one that I, I don't have, but I would be happy to play at any time. And, and yeah, conventions, same, same. yeah, I mean, they're great opportunities to play because someone sets up these these ridiculous, wonderful tracks and you get a chance to play. So, well, thanks for sharing your uh, memories about Pitch Car uh, with us because uh, it sounds like a, a great time. And like I said, it's one of those games that I like because they're just fun. Uh, and there's something to be said for that. I think sometimes... You know, people who, like myself, who consider themselves like serious gamers, you know, you, you, you kind of forget that 
fun is is one of the more important sort of elements in in games and in game design and and pitch car has that in spades uh moving right along we have another title here before i get to the one that you probably want to talk about uh which is <laughs> we have mystery of the abbey uh this is one of those eurofied uh deduction games that sort of takes clue and turns it into a real game um have you ever played it and what have been your impressions no i haven't played this one it's on it's kind of on my list of things that maybe i should try one day it sounds crazy but um you know maybe one day i'll get the opportunity yeah, it's a very interesting game. Um, I like it quite a bit. I think it is quite clever. I think it works quite well. My only concern about the game is you really must play it with people who are who are kind of going to be paying very, very close attention, okay? Uh-huh. Because the you have this sort of card, this tablet, that you have in front of you. It's actually a sheet of paper. I'm, I'm just struggling for the word. And just <laughs> like in other deduction games like Incognito or Clue or something, you are trying to sort of eliminate possibilities as you get information from other players. Sure. And this is where you can run into a problem because if a player, you know, I don't know anybody that cheats, so it's not like it's a cheating thing, but if they unintentionally give you a bad piece of information, it can completely screw up the entire game. Right, right. And and this is where I kind of think I wish this game would go towards an iOS or an Android kind of port where that information cannot be boogered, you know, where it can't yeah, be yeah. messed up. Because I've played the game and had an absolute blast with it. And I've also played it with, like, my two nieces. Uh, one year we played it uh, when we were visiting my brother and his wife and uh, uh, my nieces. And one of them just made a simple mistake. You know, they, they didn't hear what we said. And then we found out like eight, ten turns later, it's like, oh, wait a minute. You said no to that. And they're like, oh, no. And oh, man. So yeah. there went like an hour and a half. So yeah. you really have to kind of make sure that you're playing it with people who are going to be giving their full attention to the game. It's not that it's that hard. It's just that you really can't be playing it as a social experience. You know, you, you have to remain focused while you're playing Mystery of the Abbey. So it's a game I would recommend to everybody try. Uh, but don't be surprised if you're playing it in a, a loud space or a kind of a raucous environment or, uh, you know, a lot of people kind of coming and going and, you know, wanting to chat with people who are walking by. Something's going to get missed. And, and that's something that you got to be very careful of. Um, after this, Martin, we have a couple more I want to talk about. And then I'm going to kind of shut it down and move on to our main part of the episode um, for those who are waiting patiently for that. But the next one is uh, by your favorite designer. I think I'm safe in saying that, which is Reiner Knizia. And the game is Medici. Do you have any experience with this game? Because I actually haven't played this one. I played the two-player version, which oh, was right. yep. Medici Strozzi, I think. But I've never yep. played Medici or Medici or I don't know how you say it. You tell me. Go ahead. Uh, I would say Medici, I think. Um, I'm going to go ahead and shock you by saying that I I have played this game, but it's not really a big favorite of mine. Um, Yeah, I I mean, of the the sort of the the Knizia auction trilogy, uh, Ra, Modern Art, and Medici, I would say this one's easily my least favorite of the three. But then again, Ra and Modern Art are are up there with my favorite games. So, you know, um, it's all relative. But yeah, I just... I like I like some aspects of the game, but I don't. It just doesn't have the same thrill for me as Ra, and I think partly it's because the way that Medici works, you're just bidding straight 
kind of effectively dollar amounts. Although actually one of the clever things is that they're effectively you're just bidding victory points. So you, you, your piece, you score points during the game for selling stuff and then you bid those same points to buy stuff. So there's just, you know, there's not money and victory points. There's just one thing, which, which is a feature I quite like. But the thing I really like about RAR is that you have these kind of fixed bids and that gives it a lot of its distinctive feel. I don't always like the, um, the auction games where you're just bidding any amount you like. Um, it, it's a clever game. And and again, it's one that I respect more than more than I really love. I, I quite enjoyed Medici versus Strozzi actually, the two player version. It's um it's a very similar game, but I found it worked quite well as a as a two player kind of um, zero sum kind of thing. I found that game quite interesting. And then there's Strozzi as well, which um, which is another multiplayer game, which I didn't really like at all actually. That kind of felt like a hybrid of Medici and Ra, but without the bits I liked from either of those games. So that, that was a disappointing one to me. Um, that was a bad remix. Yeah, yeah, that's what I felt. I felt like it took the, um, you know, you could have taken the good parts from each of those games, but it, it, it took the bad parts from the game. So I don't know. But um, yeah, so I mean, yeah, Medici, I'd, I'd play it. I'd still play it, definitely. And and it's rare and working quite well with six players as well, I think. Um, but definitely not in my top tier Kinesia games. Okay. Yeah, most of my experience with this game, uh, I've never actually played the physical game. I've played the iOS version. And uh, that, you know, I mean, I, I, I enjoyed it when it came out. I played it um, and had some fun with it. But it wasn't anything that really stuck with me, as you said, in the same way that Raw did. Yeah, and um, you know, actually, what I found, because I, I had the iOS version too and played mm-hmm. it a bunch. And, and, and what I found was that I could win most games against the AI by never bidding on anything <laughs> and just letting the AI like pay and right, right. fill up um, fill up their boats. And then the way it works is that if you let the other players fill up their boats, they can't bid anymore because they have no room to store any goods. So you can just take whatever comes up for free. You right. don't get any choice over what it's going to be, but you don't pay anything for it. And because of your spending victory points, getting stuff free is pretty good. And I found that it must have been the way the AIs were were programmed. They were bidding too high. And so if you just never bid, you could win with just random junk. <laughs> so that was kind of disappointing. Well, I'll have to try that because yeah. <laughs> I didn't win most of the time. <laughs> I was actually bidding on things. Um, so, yeah. yeah, it sounds like, uh, uh, yeah, it sounds like, unfortunately, that's something that uh, didn't quite, get through the the whole process as far as uh, the development of that uh, particular uh, application went. So a uh, little disappointing, but uh, it was still fun. And and I think I still have it on my uh, iPhone just as something that I can play around with and have a little bit of fun. So not certainly not terrible by any stretch. Uh, just it uh, sounds like maybe the AI isn't programmed quite right. But I, I have a lot of respect for people who try to do that because I don't even understand or pretend to understand the programming that must be involved yeah. in trying to uh, get that many if-then statements uh, set up <laughs> into a computer program to run a game uh, such as that. So right, right. Uh, the last two I wanted to talk about, uh, I, I'm going to actually skip down to the bottom of the list that I wanted to talk about because, again, it's another Kinesia, and you are my kind of resident Kinesia fan and slash expert. As a matter of fact, I think we're eventually going to do sort of a Kinesia show the way Joel and I did a Feld episode, right? Right. 
Absolutely. But this one, uh, I'm not sure. Uh, it's High Society. And this is one that, again, I have never played the physical version. I just played the iOS version. Uh, what are your sort of thoughts as the sort of uh, Kinesia um, expert, uh, for lack of a better term, uh, about High Society? How do you feel about that one? So I was worried you were going to ask me about this. Because <laughs> actually, this is another one of his that is not really amongst my favorites. I guess 1995 was uh, was not the year for me and, uh, and Kinesia. He had so many great games in the... Uh, in this in the 90s but um again high society it's it's a neat game it's more of a filler it's again it's another auction game um it's more of a filler than medici it's maybe a 20 minute half hour game it has can actually be very short because it has a kind of um variable end game trigger based on the order that cards come up in so mm-hmm. you can actually have a game which which ends with um with barely anything happening at all which some people have complained about but um i I think it's you know that's just fine that's acceptable randomness but it's um yeah it has some it has some neat ideas it has this cool thing which got used in some other games where the when you get to the end of the game you have a final score based on what you've bought but also the person who is now the poorest player because they've spent the most throughout the game in the auctions is just eliminated. Right. So even if they bought a load of great stuff and they would have won otherwise, they're too poor, they're out of the game. Um, so that's quite a nice uh, a nice bit of tension there because the, the money you have left is hidden. So you're kind of thinking, well, I could buy this really good thing, but is it going to make me the poorest player? I don't know. So that's neat. And that got, that got used in some other games. Um, but... Yeah, I don't know. It's it's again. It's it's not my favorite. I'd I'd play it. I have owned it. I traded it away. It's 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 a perfectly good little game. But there are so many, you know, twenty thirty minute um, that length of game, that kind of weight of game. Even within auction games, there is a whole bunch of competition for it. it just didn't end up being best of class for me. So that's why I ended up uh, getting rid of it. Yeah, that's uh, the thing that you identified as the single thing that you liked about the game is also the one thing that stuck out to me. I really enjoyed that uh, idea of you have this push and pull in the game of you are trying to get the best possible uh, items um, during the game, uh, but if you spend too much money... It doesn't matter. It's all for naught because you're going to be eliminated anyway. And I like the sort of tension in that. It made the decisions interesting, whereas I think without that, the whole game would fall apart and be kind of meaningless. So that's one of those things that I always think about when I'm trying to think about game design and auction-type mechanics is that kind of idea, that trigger of you know it's actually a control on the players you know it gives you something that you have to keep in mind um as you play the game you can't just go all in and so i really like that i think that's a quite clever uh quite a clever idea and goodness knows you know uh, dr kinesia is great for clever ideas uh and then building a game around them so uh, i think there's definitely something to be taken from that game but it's not one that's my particular favorite either yeah yeah uh, the last one I wanted to talk about was uh, Condottieri. Um, this is one that 
there's there's been a lot of talk about it over the years that I've heard, and I was curious if you'd be able to help me out a little bit with it. Uh, there is apparently an original, I guess it's a Descartes edition, and then there's the Fantasy Flight edition, which is in a small box. Uh, I have experience with the Fantasy Flight edition, and I it, I really enjoy the game. I think it's kind of fun. It's kind of random, certainly, but... It's interesting. I love the portability of it. I love that it handles up to a very large player count. I think that's kind of nifty. Uh, but a lot of people have talked that say, you know, this is very inferior compared to the original version. Have you played either version? And if so, what have been your thoughts about it? I've played both versions. Um, and <laughs> I, I, I love this game. This is, the, this is my favorite from 1995, um, definitely. So I'm glad that that was on your, on your list to talk about. I was going to have to slip it in there somehow otherwise. <laughs> um, I played the Fantasy Flight version first because that was the one that's kind of around the most often, and I enjoyed it. Uh, I like that it's basically a card game. I like card games. You know, the board is just really a scoreboard. Um, that's fine with me. I like the... Um, you know, it's it's almost a bidding game, really, and it, it reminds me of another game I I, I really love, um, Taj Mahal, in the way that the card auctions kind of work. Um, it's really fun. Yeah, again, the the high player count works really well with six players. And yeah, then I read this stuff about this other edition and how it was superior in some way. So I thought, okay, I should um, I should check that out. Managed to find a copy on uh, on eBay, and I actually yeah I I I do find the the original version superior i wouldn't say it's it's a huge difference and i'd still enjoy playing the the fantasy flight version but um it's it's the original version is actually a little bit simpler i mean i guess this is no great surprise that that fantasy flight decided to uh, no. make things more complex no but, really <laughs> um, but there's no just, minis you know, in there the same it's the same it's it's the same general idea. It has, um, you know, most of the cards are the same, but there's just a, a, a couple of things that Fantasy Flight added. The um, the courtesans, right? That concept doesn't exist in the original. Um, there is no spring, only winter um, in the original, and the bishop works differently as well. I think in the Fantasy Flight version, the bishop like makes you makes everyone discard their highest card or something like that mm-hmm, mm-hmm. in the in the uh, original version the bishop is just such a great card because what it does is just immediately ends that battle and no one wins oh really so okay. so right. you can just have people stringing along you're, you're like playing your ones taking them back with scarecrows not really committing anything someone two two players are going all out they've got tens down they're really battling it and then you're just like bishop it's over you lose all your cards oh, sorry oh man that is rather brutal uh, it's um, awesome and there are there are just three bishop cards in the in the deck so you can kind of track whether they're still out there and oh yeah it's just it's just really neat yeah, and the other thing I really love about the original version, although I, I do like the portability of the Fantasy Flight one, that small box is cool to be able to slip it in a pocket or whatever, but the, the original version just has really great components. The art on the cards is fantastic, and they're these really big tarot-style cards that really fit with the theme of the game as well, I think. They're just, they're just beautiful and, and so much more attractive to me than the, the Fantasy Flight artwork. Excellent. Well, you know, you may have convinced me to try to go out and track down a copy of the original version because uh, that Bishop card sounds like great fun. And I'm a sucker for big 
uh, huge kind of, you know, oversized cards and with beautiful artwork. I mean, that, that's something that has always attracted me as far as game components go. It's one of the things that attracted me uh, about Seven Wonders, uh, actually, was the slightly oversized cards and the, and the nice artwork. And same thing could be said for Dixit. You know, there's really no reason for those cards to be that big, but they're so pretty, so so beautiful to look at. Uh, it really does kind of add and uh, to my enjoyment and, and enhances my enjoyment of uh, a game when I get to have those kind of beautiful components. So um, definitely I'll, I'll try and track that down. Well, I'm glad that we were thinking along the same lines there and bringing up that game. Uh, my only question left is whether it's Condottieri or whether it's Condottier or what it is. I'm not, I think it's an Italian term for yeah. mercenary soldiers. So um, I'm not exactly sure. That's why I went with Condottieri, but I'm not really sure. I think that's how I'd say it, yeah. Condottieri. Yeah. Beautiful. Let's go with that. Let's go with that. All right, we're going to pretend <laughs> that we know. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> well, Martin, I want to thank you for... Uh taking the time to uh, take a trip down 1995. There's a lot of other games that we could have talked about. Um, you know, uh, one of the 18XX series, 1856, came out that year. Um, uh, one of my kids' personal favorites from back in the day, Ratatat Cat. Great little uh, silly card game from Game Right Games. There's a lot of really uh, great stuff out there that we could have talked about. But uh, and to save a little bit of time and keep us on track, we're going to cut it off there. But I appreciate you talking to me about some of these games that are uh, actually kind of uh, seminal, sort of important designs in the hobby, even if it wasn't Dr. Kinesia's best year. So thanks for taking the time to go through that with me. No problem. I enjoyed it. So the next game that we're going to be talking about is the winner of the Spiel des Jahres. Uh, this is a game that is called Hennabi. Uh, it is a game by Antoine Bauza. It was originally released, I think, in 2009, if I'm not mistaken. Then in 2010, they came out with the edition that was just Hanabi. Um, the edition before that, I believe, was a dual kind of card game uh, edition that was Hanabi and, um, geez, I'm trying Ikebana. to remember. Yeah, Ikebana. And those two, um, yeah, Ikebana. Those two kind of games became very sort of popular very quickly, but very quietly. And then the um, Ikebana was kind of stripped from it. I'm still not entirely sure why, but it was stripped from it. And Hanabi was kind of brought out on its own and went on to become very, very popular very, very quickly. And so it's a really interesting game, and I was glad to hear that you wanted to talk about it. Uh, the game plays from two to five players, although most people would say it's best with a higher player count, um, five, I'm sorry, four or five. Uh, it's rated at about a 7.51 on BGG, and most people are saying it is best with four players uh, among those that have voted. We've got 97 votes, which is pretty decent as far as votes go for that kind of thing on BGG. Uh, the way the game works is it is a deduction game. Uh, in many ways at heart and what you're trying to do is you're trying to work with the other players at the table it's a cooperative game in order to obtain the maximum score that you can as a group 
And the way the game does this is through this very clever mechanism of using cards that are supposed to represent fireworks in different colors. And the twist on the game, I think, that made it so very popular was the fact that you cannot see your own cards. You're supposed to hold your cards in such a way that you do not know what you have. You see everybody else's cards. And then what you're trying to do is complete these sort of runs of these firework cards in ascending values by giving the players around you hints and receiving hints from other players about the cards that you have in your hand. And the hints can be either color or number, but never both. Um, and so it's a really interesting kind of cooperative game. There's a little timer built into it. There's this fascinating little uh, token. Uh, you have to flip these tokens when you give a clue. Um, and so there's, there's only so many clues you can give before uh, you know there's a, a change. You have to reset those tokens. And so it's a really interesting game. I've played it probably only about eh, five times maybe. Uh, I bought it for my wife and my kids and I to play because we're a family of five. And I thought, okay, this is going to be perfect. Uh, I found that my wife, unfortunately, didn't particularly care for it. She thought it was stupid. I have no idea why. There's no judging what my wife is going to like or not like. Um, and my kids seem to enjoy it, so I could probably get away with playing it more four-player, but it just hasn't hit the table recently, which is why I'm kind of drawing a little blank and stumbling around the token thing. I'm hoping you can fill in the blanks for me there, Martin. Um, but it, it's definitely unique, and I was really pleasantly surprised that it was picked as Spiel des Jahres because while I haven't gotten to play it a lot myself, it's one of those games that I think just did something so different and uh, in, in so simple, so simply different. Um, just, you know, nothing elaborate, nothing too crazy. It's just, hey, you can't see your own cards. It reminded me a little bit of Uwe Rosenberg's Bonanza, you know. The twist in that game is you cannot change the order of the cards in your hand. And wow, that makes an enormous difference in that game. That game doesn't even really exist without that simple one-line statement of you cannot change the order of the cards in your hand. And I feel in many ways that Hanabi works that way as well because of that very simple thing of, hey, you can't see your cards, but you can see everybody else's. So that was kind of what attracted me to that game when I heard about it, read about it. And I was really glad to see that even though it wasn't a big box game, it received a lot of attention and it received, I think, some well-deserved sort of uh, um, status by winning the Spiel des Jahres. Uh, what was your kind of background with the game? What attracted you to it? And uh, if you can fill in that hole for me on the tokens thing, because I know I boogered that somewhat um and, and just to kind of refresh my memory and everybody else's who's listening as to how that works because that's another very interesting part of the game sure um yeah well my experience with the game i guess goes back to uh i think it was 2010 actually that it, it first appeared as that hanabi and ikebana edition and there was a real sort of cult buzz around it on bgg it was impossible to get a copy but there were people talking about it and saying actually no one was talking about ikebana it sounded like that game kind of <laughs> sucked but um <laughs> really but, okay it looked interesting <laughs> yeah. to me but people right. people were talking about hanabi and saying this is really neat and and just that thing you know there was just this one idea that your cards were backwards and i just thought wow that sounds really cool because i'm a big fan of games like that where there's just that one one simple mechanic that drives everything 
and I thought this sounds this sounds really neat, but it was impossible to get hold of. So of course, what I did was find a game that had a similar kind of distribution of cards, colors, and numbers. In in my case, it was uh, this terrible looking game called uh, Morph, which my uh, mother in law had sent me as a present one year. So don't tell her. But uh, <laughs> some some quick adaptations to uh, to that. I think I had to use sevens as ones or something like that. And I and I had a set that I could uh, I could try the game out with and the first time i played i remember really well it was it was actually another one of those london on board eastbourne seaside weekends and of course because gamers can't get enough gaming on the train on the way home we were playing some more games and i i brought this set i'd made for myself and said okay you guys you, do you want to try this this game you know i've i've heard it's pretty cool and and they were a little reluctant at first to, you know, seeing these homemade cards and the rest of it. But I started explaining it, and then they're like, "Oh, this sounds cool! Yeah, let's try it." And um, and and we tried it on the train. It was slightly difficult because of the reflections in the windows, but uh, we, we we managed to avoid looking at looking at our own cards. And and I think everyone was kind of blown away by it and thought, "Wow, that that's that's an awesome idea. It works works. Um, you know, it's just 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 such a." like you said, so original, such a new feel. And there's so many times in this hobby where you hear like, oh, this game has this new thing where like, you know, you place the workers um, in some slightly different way and they're on, <laughs> oh, and now they're on cogs and, uh, and you know, all this stuff. And this game to me just felt genuinely new, a new way of interacting with people. That's what's so interesting to me. It has this amazing atmosphere. You really feel like you have to trust the other players and you're in it together there's no uh there's no one bossing you around like you often get in co-ops just has this whole new feel to it it's awesome so i played a bunch actually with the set that i'd made for myself but of course as soon as i i could get my hands on on a real copy i i wanted to and that that ended up being at Essen 2012 when the um the abacus spiel release was was everywhere and that's when that's when the game started really taking off i guess and and, and ended up getting the um the spill this year which you know fantastic decision by the by the jury well i want to circle back to a couple of things that you talked about there um one of the things that i find really interesting is i hear a lot of chatter all the time from people about cooperative games and this sort of alpha gamer syndrome you know where one person tells everybody else what to do and it ruins the game blah 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 okay i do understand that i have seen that happen i have you know been there uh i've played games with people like that i've observed cooperative games where you have that sort of alpha gamer uh i kind of have always stood by the statement that to me that's not a fault of the game design. That's a fault of the players. You know, if, if the players aren't going to negotiate their own sort of social interaction, I don't really think you can lay that at the feet of the game designer. Um, uh, but, I, I'd say yes and no to that. I'd say it's, it's a fault of the player. Yes, I agree with you. You know, if some guy's going to be a dick about it, then that's, uh, you know, that's his problem. But... It's also something that the game allows to happen in the way it's structured and a game that essentially you are playing as a cooperative puzzle, you're all solving the same puzzle with the same information, right. is going to lend itself to that kind of play in a way 
a competitive game is not. And what really fascinated me about Hanabi was that it's a cooperative game that doesn't lend itself to that kind of play because explicitly, as part of the game's rules, the information you have is limited and there are only certain ways you can talk about and share that information. Absolutely. No, and that's where I was going with that, which is that I think that Hanabi is the only game that I've seen that kind of solves that issue for people who have that issue, is, is where I was going with that. Right. Um, I, I still kind of insist that um, you know the other players at a table with an alpha kind of gamer need to kind of find ways to politely rein that person in. <laughs> uh, you know, I think too much uh, with gaming, and uh, I've seen too many times someone's good time ruined all because no one wanted to speak up. And I think that there are ways that you can speak up. There are ways that you can assert yourself without uh, being a jerk about it that will at the very least let that other player know how you or the table is feeling about that interaction. And until you've done that and given that, cha- that person a chance to kind of change their play style and change what they're doing... I don't really think you can say that there's a problem with the game. That was kind of the point that I was trying to make. However, I totally agree with you that because of how Hanabi is structured, it's impossible to have that problem. And so of all of the co-op games that I have played, uh, and, and you really kind of hit it on the head when you said, you know, any kind of game that's kind of got that puzzle sort of element to it where you're trying to figure out the best way to do things, uh, any sort of uh, game like that is going to lend itself to someone either with more experience or someone who just processes the board state better or more quickly than other players, you're going to have that alpha gamer. Um, actually, uh, Enzo622, um, Kurt Runco, posted a blog post that I'm thinking about uh, on Board Game Geek where he talked about this very thing, this idea of, you know, is an alpha player really an alpha player or are they just someone who can process that information a little more quickly and he sort of um in in the thread uh where he was talking about cooperative board games this kind of came up and it was that sort of notion of is the guy really being a jerk by saying okay look this is this is probably what we should do this is going to give us the best result and he said you know that when he's been in that situation and he sort of sits back after he kind of tells people this is what i think we should do he says then i I have to sit there and wait five, 10 minutes for people to talk about it to eventually reach the same decision that I had made five minutes, 10 minutes prior, <laughs> because yeah, I, I just, I'm able to, to grok that. I'm able to Yay. see that. And so again, is that someone being an alpha gamer? Is that them being a jerk? Or is that just someone who's really good at picking that stuff up? Well, sure. I mean, it all depends on what you want out of that game experience, doesn't it? I mean, if you want to win, then you listen to the guy who's played it a ton before and can process it really fast and knows all the best moves to make. Right. But at the end of the day, he can play it on his own if that's what he wants to get out of it. I'm, I don't need to be at that table. Right, right. And, and there's, you know, again, as you you know said, there's people who feel that way about it. It's like, well, I don't really necessarily care if we're the most efficient or even if we win, I want to just play the game and have a good time and feel like everybody contributed. And so I understand sort of all points of view of this spectrum. And all of the games that I've played, cooperative games, and I've played a ton of cooperative games, Hanabi is the one that seems to completely solve that. And so I'm going to be sort of I'm going to be sort of curious to see 
if anybody else is able to adapt this limited communication kind of rule, this limited communication kind of system to other cooperative games in order to achieve the same result. Yeah, I would love to see that. I think that would be I think that would be really interesting. Yes, I mean so would I and and I think brighter minds than mine are going to have to come up with it because this game really seems to be custom tailored towards its goal, which is, you know, trying to make this, uh, uh, these ascending, uh, arrays of cards. And it's a very simple concept. It's very, um, uh, there, there's not a lot of, uh, fluff to the game at all. It's very straightforward, but it's exceedingly difficult to do it efficiently enough that you're going to be able to score the best possible score. And, you know, I don't traditionally like games that are just all about, well, let's see if I can beat last game's score. That, to me, feels a little solitaire-ish. But because of the fun that you have with the other players at the table as you cooperatively try to play this game, it's, it's, it's as if you could play solitaire with a bunch of people. Yeah. And you're all contributing together. That makes it much more enjoyable than other games that have tried to accomplish the same thing. Um, Martin, can you uh, tell us a little bit about those tokens, those firework tokens, sure. the lightning tokens in the middle of the table? Because I screwed that up in my explanation, and I need you to bail me out. So go ahead. <laughs> yeah, no problem, Jeff. So there's actually two kinds of uh, tokens. Um, one is the clue token, uh, which regulates the information effectively. So you have these like um, eight tokens, which are white, one side white, one side black. Um, you start with all white tokens, and that represents eight clues that you are able to give to uh, the players are able to give to other players. So each time you want to tell someone something about their hand, either all of one color or all of one number of card that is in their hand, you have to flip one of those little tokens over to black and if all the tokens are black and it's your turn, well, too bad. You don't get to give a clue, so you're going to have to do something else with, with your turn. Of course, there is a way of flipping those tokens back over again, and that is by discarding cards. So if you kind of know or suspect that one of the cards in your hand isn't one of the ones you really need, either because there are multiple copies of some of the cards, so you might um, say, I'm going to go ahead and chuck this card, and by doing that, you flip one of the tokens back over to white again. So that gives you you this limit on information where you can't just giving you can't just keep giving clues you're going to have to start doing something with them and, and getting the clues back again um, the other type of token is the storm token there are three of those and they represent mistakes so if i say i'm going to play this card thinking that it's you know a red two that's going to go on top of the red one but actually it's a uh, yellow three which we on the yellow pile yet so that can't be played then that's um that's bad you know sirens go off we flip one of the storm tokens <laughs> over um and if all three of those storm tokens get turned over then it's over we blew ourselves up we stopped the game right there we score nothing and actually i had a, ended up having a, a bit of an argument on BGG over this issue of whether if you flip over the third storm token, we agreed the game immediately ends. But I think in that circumstance, your score is zero. And I'm pretty sure by my reading of the rules, your score is zero. So regardless of how well you are doing, you screwed up, you're all dead, you blew up, it's, it's zero. Um, he was arguing that your score should still be wherever you'd got to before that happened. 
and 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 was also arguing that it really doesn't matter at that point you know well the game's over anyway but i think it does matter because you really don't want to go risking that last storm token by just playing something blind at the end of the game you know because you're going to score zero that's worse than scoring like 19 or whatever so i don't know um that gives it there's that little bit of tension and it means you can't just go um you know playing stuff willy-nilly you have to have a pretty good idea that it's going to be a, a safe card to play yeah i would be curious to hear if uh the designer uh antoine bowser you know would weigh in on that because my my reading of the rules is pretty much the same as yours which is you lose. I mean, if you lose, I don't know why you would calculate a score. Right. Uh, however, I can see that appealing to people who want to play the game a little less as a deduction game and a little more as sort of a risk management kind of a game where it's like, well, I'm not entirely sure. Uh, I know that this is a two, but I don't know if it's a red or a yellow based on the clues that I've been given. Ah, what the heck, I'm going to go for it. If, you know, I blow it, the game's over, but we're still going to get a decent score. If I make it, I'm a hero, you know, whatever. And and so I can see, you know, people maybe being attracted to that. But uh, I also really agree with um, Joel Eddy when he and I have talked on some other episodes about, you know, I don't want to have to interpret rules. I, I, I want someone to just tell me what the deal is. Uh, I, I, I'm not a big fan of house rules. I, I would like to play the game as the designer intended. I'm totally fine with designer variants. If the designer wanted to include a variant where that score would still count, that's great. But, you know, personally, I would rather just know. And, and as far as I know, my read of the rules is the same as yours. So, um, Okay, uh, well, thanks for explaining those tokens because, of course, as you say it, it all comes back to me and I feel like an idiot, but uh, I'm glad you were there to uh, refresh my memory. And that is a, a really interesting uh, part of the game because I believe, if I'm not mistaken, uh, the one thing that, that you didn't talk about, you said that the clue tokens can be flipped back over, and I believe the way they're flipped over is if you play a card to the display you get to flip a token back over and therefore be able to give a clue. Am I, am I remembering that correctly? Uh, only the fives. If you, if you successfully play a five to a pile, that flips a, flips a token back over again. Otherwise, you can only get them back again by discarding. Right, right, which is also another really interesting decision. But I knew there was a way you could play a card and flip a token. Uh, yeah. And I believe the card distribution, I think there's only one five of every color. Correct. And then I think there's like two fours and three threes and four. Uh, two th- twos, threes and fours and three ones. Three ones. Okay. All right. So, yeah, that that's – and again, I really like that about the design because you do have more than one chance. And it does allow you to make those intelligent decisions about discarding that you're talking about because – if I see that the green three is already out and I come to learn that I have a green three in my hand, well, it's not dead to me. It's not wasted. It's not just taking up space. It's actually extremely useful for me. And it's extremely useful for the table to know because then I can discard that and flip one of those clue tokens back over. Because, you know, the game is really all about sharing that information and taking some well-reasoned risks. But for the most part, it's about, you know, trying to deduce through the clues that you're given 
what cards you actually are holding so that when you play them, you don't, you know, botch it. And I really like that tension of those tokens because there will come that time and it'll come really rapidly, especially in the early game where everyone just wants to give clues. Um, You know, unless you're lucky and, you know, someone says these are ones, you know, and you're like, ah, okay, I can play though. You know, I can play those and and that's okay because they're the first cards on the table and I want them to be ones, you know. Um, If you don't have that opportunity, you're going to burn through those clues pretty quickly. And then you get that really tense decision over what am I going to discard from my hand? Uh, should I discard? Should somebody else discard? Uh, you know, those kind. Of, and then you have good conversations about that, but not in that sort of alpha player uh, manner that we've been talking about uh, previously. So uh, those are some aspects of the design that I really enjoy. Uh, what are your thoughts about player count? I know what BGG recommends. What do you think? I would say... Four is probably my favorite. Um, So I would agree with BGG there, but I don't think it's a strong preference. Three is absolutely fine, I think. I I really enjoy it with three, probably almost as much as four. Five is fine too, but maybe it's just pushing it a little bit, like just just because you're waiting longer, you know, and it doesn't really add anything to the experience. Some games really are at their best with with a large player count. Hanabi's not really one of those games. So five just feels a little too much. Two... I haven't played it that much with two and I didn't really enjoy it when I, when I did, but I know some people do really swear by the two player game as well. And I can see the attraction. Um, but I, I would say for me, I would prefer to play as a three or four player game. Yeah, I would have to agree with you there. I really did not find the two player game all that interesting personally, but uh, maybe I just needed to give it a little more uh, of a try. But there's so many other two player games that that I can play. I kind of am the of of the opinion that you know if a game really shines with you know three or four or whatever the player count number is, why force it? You know why force the square peg into the round hole? I. I I just kind of feel like, well, I'd rather play something else two-player that I know, like Innovation, that plays brilliantly with two. I'd much rather play that than, you know, play uh, uh, Hanabi with two. Um, So... Yeah, I, I find that it uh, is is definitely best with the, the higher player counts. I like it with five personally, but I think you do have more almost control uh, with four. I think you do seem to get more information. It's a little bit riskier of a game with five, I find, than yeah. it is with four. So, you know, again, if you're kind of looking for max control, uh, you're probably going to want to shy away from the five experience and stay with the three and four experience, which I, yeah. I you know, I find is best. One of the things I, I think actually that the reasons why I prefer it with more than two is the neat clues you can give where you give a clue to one player and that also tells a third player something about their hand. Um, and you can do some really neat tricks like that. Like, um, you know, someone, the player who's next to play after you has a three, but they don't know what color it is. And they're not sure whether to play it or not. And then you go ahead and point to the guy, say, "Oh, this one's green." And they're looking at that, and they're like, "It's a, but it's a green four. How's he going to play that unless we have the green three down?" And then they're like, "Ah!" And they play their green three, and the next guy plays his green four, and you know things like that are just really neat. And that can't really happen with two players. No, I agree absolutely because there there is way there are ways I shouldn't say is ways because that's just terrible grammar. There are ways uh, that you can do that deduction uh, based on clues that other players have, and it's because of what you talked about, which is the 
number and type of each color card is known. So based on what's on the table and based on the clues that other players are being given and based on what you uh, see around you, you can you can get a pretty good idea. So I agree with you. That is something that's, that's missing uh, from the two-player game, at least in my opinion it is. Or maybe I'm just not smart enough. <laughs> um, now, I, I wanted to also ask you very quickly um, about the deluxe version of Hanabi. I've, I've heard some interesting conversations about it. And one of the, the most interesting things I read about it was while the production of the Deluxe Hanabi, which is almost like these, uh, they almost look like the Bakelite kind of tiles yeah. that they used for Hive. You know, these beautiful domino kind of thick, clunk, you know, chunky kind of things that you just put on the table in front of you. Um, but the, the comments that I heard were, uh, you know, very interesting to me, which is, you know, so much of the clues that you get in Hanabi, there's nothing to say you can't rearrange the cards in your hand based on the information you've been given, even though you can't look at them. Or perhaps you can kind of tilt one in your hand. It's like, okay, I know that's a four because I got it tilted, uh, you know, tapped uh, uh, to the side or something of that nature. There are things that you can do with the cards that can help you remember, whereas with these chunky kind of tiles, I don't know that you can do that as well. Uh, I also worry about it as a tall person. Uh, I'm, I'm around six, four that I would be able to see it whether or not I tried to or not, just because, you know, they're, they're down on the table in front of me and I'd be worried that I would catch a glimpse of a color or something of that nature. So, uh, what, what are your thoughts on this deluxe edition? Is it necessary? Is it fun? Uh, is it not worth it? What, what do you think? it's in no way is it necessary i think we can we can agree on that i mean this game works perfectly fine with a box of cards that you can pick up for you know five to ten dollars i'm sure um but it is beautiful i i i got uh given a hanabi deluxe edition for for christmas it was obviously uh something i requested nice um, i mean it's it's a beautiful thing to to own and you know, I want. I love the game enough that I thought it would be a nice thing to have. It's um, you know, it, it, it's lovely to look at. It's lovely to play with. I don't think that thing about rearranging the cards. I, I actually think you can do just as much, if not more, with the with the tiles. You know, you can turn them on their on their long side if you want. You can kind of arrange them in a different pattern, separate them out on the table, put them into groups. You know, if you want to play that way, you, there's there's plenty of options for for things you can do with the tiles too. And, and I don't know. Uh, I don't know that that I can't imagine how you would get some kind of sightline around to the the front of the tile. They're pretty chunky, fat tiles. I think that would be uh, that would be hard to to do. So no, I, I mean it, it, it's a lovely it's a lovely addition. I'm waiting to see whether I have any problems with the um, marking of the tiles, scratching, and I'm not sure. I'm, I'm hoping not, but I can see that as they get played with and kind of shuffled around, um, you know, you might end up with some marks, which could obviously be a problem with, with with a game that relies on you not knowing what your tiles are but it's certainly it's certainly a, a nice thing to own yeah that's really interesting i would have never thought about marking as a possible problem but i think you're 100 percent correct i mean geez if if it gets any kind of scratch or chip or anything that would probably uh, be a dead giveaway i mean cards you can always sleeve um right. you know cards you can always replace they're cheap um, but, you know, th- this uh, would be a problem if it got marked up. But, uh, you know, it sounds like you, you uh, think that it's it's definitely, uh, if you're a Hanabi enthusiast, you would give it a thumbs up? Yeah, sure. I mean, it's, uh, you know, it's a totally frivolous and uh, luxury uh, thing to own. But, you know, 
go go for it if uh, if you think you'd like it. <laughs> and it's not really unreasonably priced. I think it's like what around fifty dollars or something yeah. U.S. Yeah, I something mean, it, it like wasn't that. too bad. It's not. We're not talking. Uh, you know the deluxe Catan or or Takenoko or Lord yeah. of the Rings or anything. Yeah, um, very nice, very nice. Well, thanks for uh, giving that little uh, insight into that deluxe version because I've seen it. I, I just hadn't had a chance to play it, or I was kind of curious how it would work. Uh, you know, from a place a gameplay standpoint. So, well, you know, I appreciate you taking the time to talk to me about Hanabi. It, before we sign off on this game and this design and our discussion about it, is there anything else that you would like to add about what makes this game so compelling for you or something that you particularly enjoy or perhaps you know as i was talking about kind of trying to look into the future and see whether or not this kind of limited information communication is going to be used in other co-op game designs in the future is there anything else you'd like to add about the game before we move on yeah well actually i think the the thing that we haven't talked about at all which comes up a lot when people do talk about Hanabi on on BGG and also every time I play it there's some discussion is is the issue of the communication and the limitations on the communication and how strict they should be and how how strictly they should be enforced and you know what about facial expressions and what about kind of you know people gasping as someone's about to discard <laughs> a, a certain tile and and then and then that leads into the whole the whole thing of com- uh, conventions as well and what is you know can you somehow get across extra information by agreeing certain codes and conventions in in advance um so there's actually there's a really there's a whole lot of discussion to be had over how the game should be played and interestingly the bowser the designer has pretty much come out and said do what you want you know it's um play the game how you want to play it and and in, enjoy it and and you know I, I I can respect that but where you can have problems sometimes when you play with people who played a certain way and you've played a certain different way and you kind of butt heads a bit over what you should be allowed to do and what you shouldn't and how how strictly to play it. and I, I I played at Christmas um, I taught my um, my sister and my brother-in-law with the uh, the deluxe edition and my brother-in-law turned out to be a real stickler and he was like he was not having anything being said outside of exactly the clues that should be given and got you know quite um you know almost upset when he felt that we weren't playing properly you know and that I thought was quite interesting because he's not really a, a serious gamer but but really felt like these are the rules we should be you know we should be playing it this way or there's no point um and then you get on the other end of the spectrum you get people saying well you know is it okay if i say well this one's a two but this one's also a two hint hints kind of thing and i'm like well <laughs> if you're going to do that point. then just play a different game that just seems dumb to me but um you know so there's this whole spectrum of of, of what should and shouldn't be allowed these gray areas and that's that's quite an interesting thing i think and and i've seen these um posts on bgg as well which i couldn't believe like huge lists of precise conventions written down you know like if i give a clue about your leftmost three then that means the next player should discard their right hand card and you know like crazy stuff i'm like that okay if that's fun for you then again i guess bad is right you know play the way you want to play but but the problem can come if if you your group has players who want to play it in in different ways, I guess. Um, and, and and the other the other element of that is the is the whole memory thing. Like, to, how much do you want to play it as a memory game, where 
once you've been given a clue, you have to remember what you were told. And if you move your cards around and screw it up, well, too bad. Um, we usually go kind of um, slightly loose on that, where you can say to somebody, "What do you know about your hand?" Like what, and and they can say based on the clues they've already been given, they can say, "Well, I know this is a five and this is red, or or whatever." I, I'm fine with that, but some people wouldn't be. Some people will say no strict you know you get the clue that's it and then on the other hand some people i know play it taking notes and write down every clue they're given and and every piece of information and really play it as a as a pure deduction game no memory element at all so it's really interesting to me that such a simple game can have so many different styles of play uh, supported by it yeah, that is very interesting. I, I have not had enough play experience with other players to have seen any of that coming, uh, nor have I read the forums that you're talking about that would have given me a clue or a glimpse into that. I mean, some of what you're talking about just sounds like cheating. Uh, you know, the, this this notion of, you know, uh, what about raising your eyebrows or, right, you know, right. this and that. I mean, if you're going to be trying to give each other signs, that, that's no different than trying to cheat in bridge or any other kind of game that uh, you would play with other players. Uh, I, I don't really think there's any room in the game for that kind of thing. However, I do find it interesting that you know you're talking about this notion of the players at the table have to kind of negotiate the terms under which they're going to play. It reminds me a lot of Scott Nicholson's game, Going, Going, Gone, which I sort of demoed uh, exhaustively with a lot of the other great volunteers at the Stronghold booth, where you know the, the rules for the game are very sort of open um, as far as what is and what is not allowed. And Scott said the exact same thing that Antoine Bowser said, which was, you know, do, do what you want, you know, play it how you want. And what he meant by that was, as you play Going, Going, Gone, which is a pure auction game where you're basically tossing cubes into these plastic cups to bid for cards to build sets that are going to be worth money at the end uh, of the game to determine who wins. It's very simple. That's pretty much the whole game. Um, There is one rule that, you know, you are not allowed to kind of put your hand over a cup and block it. Um, But there is no rule whatsoever about things like bumping people or shouldering them or (laughs) smacking their hand. You know, as as they reach, you push your hand in and you kind of have a little little war there or, you know, um, the idea of uh, that I love to do, which is bluffing, you know, acting like I'm chucking a cube into a cup with my hand to encourage my opponents to overspend (laughs) on something that I have no desire to get. And yet... People are like, oh, that's not fair. You can't do that. And I'm like, well, Scott actually sort of specifically said, you know, creative strategies like that that you can come up with, you know, if the table's okay with it, there's no rule that says you can't do that. So I've seen games of going, going, gone played almost like a rugby match where people are just literally just kind of bouncing off each other and standing and pushing and shoving. And I've seen other games played very civilized, very polite, very calm. And so... Uh, it sounds a lot like what you're talking about with Hanabi, which is that since the rules don't explicitly state everything, they don't delineate all possible um, behaviors at the table, uh, people are going to interpret that in different ways. And I think you're you're 100% correct, which is that as long as you are clear when you sit down at the table what you are and are not going to allow – what the group is going to decide in advance is how you're going to do it. I think that that's totally fine. But I do see that this would open up huge issues with this ever being any kind of a convention game. I don't think you could ever really do it. 
as far as any kind of competition goes. Because, yeah, I yeah. know. I, we actually thought about having it as um, as one of our contests at, um, at Eastbourne again, the the London on board uh, weekend. But I, I agree, you know, without some kind of you know a judge kind of sitting in on every game and saying, oh nope, that was over the line. You know, it just wouldn't really work. Yeah, and I also don't think it would be worth it. No. You know, I, I, to me, uh, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm just not a, a serious enough person. But Hanabi is a game that I would consider to be fun. It, it's not meant to be, at least in my opinion, this brain burner game. Like, I would never write down the clues. I would never do that. To me, that would be more work than it would be worth. I mean, I, then, it, then it becomes actual just sort of taxing work now some people really like that and i understand that but for me i kind of like the playing it more of a memory kind of a game and rearranging the cards in my hand and i don't mind it if my kid makes a mistake and puts a card down you know everybody goes oh you know there's this big hullabaloo but nobody really cares all that much because the game is over pretty quickly it's not a really long game and then you just shuffle it up and you play again you know no big deal Um, And I think sometimes some of these games are elevated into this sort of cerebral status where, you know, people take it really, really seriously. And I'm like, "Eh, I don't know. That's just not my style. So I I would agree with you. I think that if you tried to codify every behavior that could happen in a game of Hanabi, it would quickly just send it off the rails and it wouldn't be any fun. Um, You know, be just a bunch of people rules lawyering and sitting around going, "Uh, uh, uh, I can't do that. You moved your (laughs) finger. It's like, oh, come on. You know? Yeah. I mean, I think the one way you could do it would be would be as an online version that, you know, you couldn't see the other players. And literally the only communication would be whatever the program allowed you to have. So that would pretty much rule out any of those problems but you know that's not you know, what, what what i'm interested in doing but but that you know i could see i could see that working yes i could see it working quite well as an online game yeah actually yeah as soon as you said it i'm like boy that's a good idea you should try to code that and uh, you probably make <laughs> a lot of money <laughs> see now that you're studying to become a teacher um you you uh, may need to supplement your income with things of that nature <laughs> but anyway uh i digress yeah no i i think it's a fascinating game i think it's well worth the uh, attention that it has received i like that it is uh, you know on the one hand i'm a feld fan i know you're not but i mean i like complexity i like options i like a lot of different paths to explore i don't even mind getting lost every once in a while but i'm equally pulled by games that are really simple that are very just kind of you know i use that word elegant sometimes just very elegant simple straightforward and Hanabi really falls into that category for me, and I really enjoy it for that reason. So uh, I thank you for taking the uh, time to talk with me about the great game of Hanabi by Antoine Bowser. No problem. That was good to talk about. And now it's time for a new game review. Join us for a quick look here on The Long View. Now we're going to take a quick look here on The Long View at a new game. The game that Martin and I are going to be discussing today is the game Palaces of Carrera. This is a relatively new game by uh, the great kind of famed duo of uh, Kiesling and Kramer. 
this is a game that came out in the year 2012, but it's just kind of making its way here over to the States, mostly in a German language version. It's been extremely difficult to try to track down any kind of an English version. Uh, I was fortunate enough to get my copy from, you guessed it, gamesurplus.com. Um, Thor is one of the few people that seem to have copies of it, and he does seem to get them in on a semi-regular basis from his distribution channels, so I would encourage you to take a look at him if you like what you hear about this game. It's a game that's designed for two to four players. The playing time is listed at 60 minutes, and I find that to be refreshingly accurate. <laughs> um, a lot of times with games, you'll see a play time, and you know, you're like, well, you're going to have to add another hour for the first play, and it's going to be uh, more than that with different numbers. Of it. No, it's around a 60-minute game in my experience. Uh, I've played it as a two- and three-player game. I have not yet played it with the full player count of four. Uh, at its heart, uh, it is a very, very streamlined, simple kind of a game. Uh, one of the reasons I wanted to talk about it with Martin tonight is because it reminds me in some ways of Hanabi in that it is not rules heavy. It is not, there's not a lot that you have to teach. It's not a complex game. And yet the decisions in it can be very, very difficult. Um, they're very interesting. There's an interesting economy to the game. And there's a whole lot going on in a game that has very few moving parts. Um, as a matter of fact, there's actually literally one moving part. Um, but in terms of game mechanisms, it really is quite uh, simple. Simple, but it's difficult to master. And so what I'd like to do is turn it over to Martin, who has had more play experience with it than I have, and ask him to explain a little bit of the actual gameplay. And then we'll tell you a little bit about our thoughts about the game of the Palaces of Carrera. So Martin, can you give us a little bit of a rundown of the general flow of play? Yeah, sure. So it's one of these games which I think of as quite an old school uh, Euro attribute where you basically, on your turn, you just have three choices of things you can do and you do one of them. And what those are in this game, there is a kind of a market, which is where you buy pieces of marble, they're little wooden blocks, which come in different colors. And this has a wheel, Jeff was referring to. Uh, so if you're familiar with the games, uh, well, with Vikings, for example, a similar kind of thing, a rotating wheel. And what happens with this is that you spin it round, which makes all the blocks that are already on it cheaper. And then you choose a segment of the wheel and buy as many blocks from it as you like at their current price. So you've got this thing going on where you want some you want the bricks as cheap as possibly for yourself but also by spinning the wheel you're making them cheaper for everyone else so there's kind of a difficult decision there the second action you could possibly take is to spend your blocks and you will be spending your blocks to erect buildings in your in various different cities um so you have a kind of individual player board which has an area for each of the six different cities and by spending blocks you take a building tile which are in a display on the central board and add them to one of your cities and the interesting thing here is that there's kind of a hierarchy of the block colors so the there's one of the cities the cheapest city you can spend any old kind of of color of block there and and that's fine um the most exclusive of the cities they will only have buildings which are constructed entirely of fancy white marble so um it's harder to build in that city but then there's a greater reward when it comes around to the third action, the third action possible. And this is an interesting thing. The third action is to score one of your cities or 
type of building. So scoring doesn't just happen in this game. You have to choose it to happen. You have to choose when it happens. Um, so there's a tension there as well, particularly because each city can only be scored by one player. So there's a slight race element as well where you want to get stuff built in a city so that you can score it for uh, for a reasonable amount of, um, of points or money before someone else gets there and beats you to it. So those are the three actions. That's pretty much all there is to the basic game. Um, there is a whole bunch of other stuff which kind of comes in an envelope. It's almost like an expansion, an advanced game, which has this stern warning that you should not open it or even think about it until you've played the basic <laughs> game a few times. Um, it's like Risk Legacy. I mean, I won't go into into all the details of that, but the main the main thing it introduces that's that's quite interesting is kind of kingdom builder style variable objectives. So at the start of each game, you draw some cards from four different stacks, and they will tell you this game, this is what you're going to score points for, this is what you're going to need to achieve to make the game end. So you've got this huge variability coming in as well, which I always like as a, as a feature in a game. Yeah, you know, it's one of the things that I'm really looking forward to is exploring that expansion because I still am playing this game with just the base uh, and having a, a really good time. Uh, the decision points that you're talking about, uh, when to score a particular type of building, when to score a city, you, know, you have to kind of keep an eye on your opponents and see uh, there's actually a minimum number of buildings that have to be built by a player in a particular city before they're eligible to score it. So a lot of times I'll kind of keep an eye uh, if I'm building in Pisa, for example, uh, I think you need a minimum of two buildings in Pisa before you could conceivably score that city. And so, uh, you know, I kind of keep an eye on my opponents and it's like, well, they only have one building there. And so I'm safe to try to gather more marble uh, so that I can build perhaps a third building in Pisa because at its heart, uh, like a lot of Euro games, there's some efficiency issues here. You know, you, you, you only get to score each of the type of building that is available once in the game. And you only get to score, and, and every player can score the buildings, um, the, the type of building once per game. But as you indicated, you can only score the cities uh, once per game in total, and that's among all the players. So you really have to kind of keep an eye on the other players. But if you can get sort of more bang for your buck by having more buildings in a particular city, of course, that's going to be, it's going to give you a huge advantage. So there is a little bit of that race element, that little game a chicken kind of element where you're like okay can i push my luck and delay scoring the city looking at what they you know i think i remember what they took for their marble because what players take goes behind a screen so uh, unless yeah. you're really paying attention you don't always know what your opponents have and so there is that little bit of risk there of and and that memory element of okay i don't recall them getting the gold that they need and they don't have enough white so they can't build in pisa so i'm okay for another round because i can get this other building out before i score pisa and so you really have a lot to think about in the game given the fact that as you said you have three choices on your turn and they're very concrete very straightforward but the game state itself really kind of encourages a lot of thinking, and uh, I really find that I'm enjoying it. So I'm looking forward to that expansion. Uh, I have busted open the envelope and looked, and I've seen the cards, and uh, the text is in German, of course, in the German version, but the translations are there, and uh, it's not too onerous. There, there's actually uh, iconography on the cards that makes it pretty simple once you... Oh, yeah, okay, I see what that means. And so, uh, and, 
and I think there's only three of them per game that are going to kind of come out. And actually, I think there's only one, isn't there? I think there's one that would be random um, for scoring and the other two end game conditions. I haven't actually played with that advanced version yet. Can How many of those cards come out in the advanced version? And then can uh, you also tell us about the flip side of the boards? Uh, so you have four cards. Um, there, are, there are four different types of, there are basically four small decks and you draw one from, from each and they will tell you uh, the conditions that have to be satisfied for someone to end the game and they also give bonus points for certain combinations of things you might do during the game. So they give you a, a new little scenario to work out each game i guess like different things you know what you thought was valuable might not be in this new configuration right. you have to kind of reassess so that that i find really interesting um the the flip side of the player boards is just just adds another couple of scoring options which are that you can also score based on the color of the building tiles as well so there are like they're brown city tiles and there are green uh field tiles and and you can score those in a certain way as well so it just adds another little thing and there, there are a couple more things that 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 go into that advanced game that actually turn it to you know there's really quite a lot to think about and it's less simple certainly to to explain but 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 i find very interesting the one thing i was going to pick up on from what you just said is that um we actually stopped using the player screens now we decided they weren't adding anything that memory element wasn't doing anything for us and we preferred to know uh, to be able to look around and see, okay, well, he's got no white marble, so I don't need to worry about that yet. Oh, or, oh he's only got five coins, so he's <laughs> going to have to do that to make some more money. No, I don't like that at all, Martin. No, no it's I not know, a perfect information. Actually, game. I, I, I'm, normally, I'm normally on your side of this one, Jeff. I'm normally, I'm normally one to say that's okay, you know, have the screens. But, but we found where I thought it might slow the game down, I think it actually sped it up for us. So, and also. The game takes up quite a lot of room on the uh, on the table once you have yes. everything everything out, and not having those screens kind of help with that too. So I, I, I'm I haven't even no you know I haven't even thought about it since we first decided not to use them. I haven't thought about using them again, but I can I can see where where people would want them. Yeah, well, you know, and again, I think that's one of those kind of variants that if uh, the people that you're playing with are good with that, then I think you know more power to you that that's fine i'm certainly uh, i'll boo you playfully but uh, <laughs> i don't i don't really care all that much i'm not gonna start a thread on bgg or anything um but yeah i, I kind of i like that element of it i like the uncertainty i think when you make everything perfect information and, and this goes back to you know that old argument you know some people like perfect information games and some people like there to be a little bit of uncertainty or variability whether it's through a die roll or hidden information or yeah whatnot. I, I guess where that comes in though for for me is the um there are a couple of things that are randomized so the wheel the market wheel i was talking about gets refilled with blocks each time some get um taken off and and those come in randomly and also the building the display of building tiles is kind of cycling so every time something gets bought from there a a new random one comes in so you know i i'm with you i'm not normally a fan of of perfect information games but but this one has has enough randomness in there to keep me happy without uh, needing that sort of memory element as well i guess 
Gotcha, gotcha. Well, you know, I I can tell you that you know I've played the game probably around six times, I think, uh, since I purchased it, perhaps more, but I think about around six or seven times. And I really enjoy it. I enjoy it for all the reasons that we've discussed. I think that it plays well with two. It plays well with three. I haven't tried it with four yet, but I can't imagine why it wouldn't. Uh, I like the choices that the game gives you. They are simple, but they're not easy. I like the market mechanism of the wheel. You're absolutely right. I was thinking about like Aura and Labora and something like that. But no, Vikings is a much better uh, analogy than uh, the wheel from Aura and Labora. Uh, I really enjoy that part of it. Uh, I find it to be a game that's a lot of fun. It feels old school to me, but not old. I, I don't know how else to say that. I think it's a, a real winner. I like the playtime. It's something that I can sit down with my wife at 9 o'clock if she's up for a game after the kids are upstairs in bed and say, hey, you know, you want to play this? And we can easily get it knocked out in an hour and have a really nice time. Usually she beats me, but I still have a nice time. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I think it's a real solid game. I would definitely say it, it would be one that I would recommend people seek out uh, if they can find themselves a copy of it. I'm hoping it's going to get wider distribution, but I haven't heard much about it. What would be your sort of final recommendation since we are supposed to be reviewing this game? Is this one you would recommend or not, and why? Absolutely. It's um, become a real favorite for me over the, the past year. I, I played it for the first time at Essen 2012 um, a couple of times, once in the in the halls where they were, they wouldn't even let you have the envelope. They wouldn't let you look at that or think about it. It was like <laughs> you're playing the basic game and that's it. So um, I... I then somebody bought a copy. We played the advanced game in the in the hotel that night, and so I saw what that was all about too. But then I kind of forgot about it. There were so many great games from that that Essen that I was I was in love with. Um, I just kind of forgot about palaces and thought, well, it was it was good, it was solid, but yeah, there's plenty more games. And then somebody at uh, Lob had a had a copy, and so I started playing it a couple more times. I thought actually, I, there's something about this game. I I really like it's kind of getting getting its hook in me somehow and I managed fortunately to to find myself in an English edition um just before they completely vanished and then started forcing it on my uh my game group here and, and just bringing it every week and unfortunately those guys actually were quite into the idea of getting some repeat plays of the game and 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 getting to know it a bit and and that's something i really enjoy because it's so easy to just move on to the next thing so it's become a real favorite in the in in the past few months really i've, I've probably played it about 15 times now and I'm, I'm really hoping to to keep up that pace this year and, uh, and and see where we go with it because at the moment i'm still crushing them you know so i'm hoping oh, for some nice. competition soon <laughs> <laughs> well you yeah, that them's fighting words you better not let them hear that but uh yeah the, you know the last thing i want to say about it uh, you know both you and i really enjoy the gameplay uh we really enjoy the mechanics it sounds like i will say that the theme is pretty ridiculously non-present I, it, oh, it, yeah, it, yeah. it really is just about collecting blocks of stuff and 
and turning them in to build things and then scoring them. It, there, there really is no theme. So, so don't get this game if you're looking for a thematic game about building beautiful cities of marble of various colors in Italy because it really has nothing to do with that at all. And that, as you were talking, I was you know looking at the BGG page and you know kind of scanning through the pictures and I'm like, oh yeah, I kind of forgot about that. <laughs> this game really has no theme at all. But again. I'm a guy who likes Feld, and so that doesn't particularly bother me. I don't need a strong thematic connection. I enjoy it. That's why I'm a Martin Wallace fan, but I don't have to have it uh, in a game in order to enjoy it, and this game does not really have a strong theme at all, but it's just a pleasure to play, so I would definitely recommend it. Well, Martin, thank you very much for taking the time to do a quick look at the Palaces of Carrera, and thank you once again for agreeing to be with me on the show here today. No problem, Jeff. It's always a pleasure. So for Martin Griffiths and myself, I want to say thank you to my sponsor, GameSurplus.com. Uh, feel free to go and check them and see if they can score you a copy of Palaces of Carrera, if that game sounds interesting to you. And of course, I want to uh, say a special thank you to the Dice Tower Network and encourage people to go and check out all of the great shows and resources available there. Also, please remember, if you're in the Stroudsburg, Pennsylvania area, go check out the Gamer's Edge. Whether you're looking for a great place to play Friday Night Magic or whether you're looking for a fantastic board game. Gamer's Edge is the place for you. That's in Stroudsburg and feel free to drive by and check them out. They are right on Main Street. Impossible to miss. So for Martin Griffiths and myself, thanks out there for listening and have a great night.